what you'll hear on Patreon. This is the problem, right? This is why no one can think dialectically anymore. We live in a, a fundamentally authoritarian society now, a kind of old-fashioned authoritarian society, like people look to their superiors for the answers to their questions and defer to them in terms of what is what they're obliged to do and what they are allowed to do. Um, that's the world we live in now, but it's not in the sense that we're simply back in like a, a medieval, um, you know, a system of, of castes or something. Um, it's a regression within a fundamentally, st we still live in a fundamentally bourgeois society, but it, it has, in a certain sense, regressed back to a pre-bourgeois authoritarian way of, of functioning because the bourgeois dialectic of, of social existence is fundamentally in crisis and we are unable to resolve that crisis. So what do we do? We look to superiors, we look to authorities, we look to the state to solve these problems for us. And that's you, that, if that's the way you think, then dialectics is fundamentally off the table. It's either right or wrong, yes or no, good or bad. My name is Reed Kane. Um, I am an independent socialist intellectual. I am not affiliated with, you know, I'm not an academic. I used to be a student, but I'm not affiliated with any organizations other than I am a, a member of the Platypus Affiliated Society. Although I'm not speaking here in the capacity of, you know, representing that organization. These are, you know, my own views, uh, certainly informed by my education in Platypus, but not speaking for anyone but myself. And at present, I'm mostly just engaged in kind of independent research and scholarship. I've published a few articles in Sublation Magazine last year. I published a few articles in the Platypus Review, a few other places. But other than that, I'm mostly currently writing a lot on Twitter or X, I, I suppose. My, my handle, Socialist Legacy, is probably, I think you can see that on the screen. And I have a number of articles in the works that are at varying stages of completion. So hopefully I should be getting some of those published over the next few months. Well, that's great. And of course, Ablation Magazine will be very happy to have them, should you so desire. Of um, course. But I, you know, I wasn't familiar with, I wasn't sure who you were. You just sort of popped up on my timeline <laughs> one day. And I thought, who is this person? Why are they so great? And oh, <laughs> I, so I've been really, really enjoying your commentary on Twitter. Your your handle after well after your at social mm -hmm. legacy is old fashioned Marxist. So what makes you an old fashioned Marxist? Uh, yeah, so um, I, I actually yeah sort of I've been I've been on on Twitter for a long time, but haven't used it terribly regularly. Um, I tend to write in very long blocks of text, and you know before recently. Twitter was not very accommodating for that kind of thing. So I just didn't really use it a whole lot. Um, now I, you know, you have to pay for it, but you can write um, much longer posts. So I, I do that um, because there's a lot of, I think a lot of interesting uh, engagements to be had on there. It's a, it's, I think a pretty, um, you know, considering the state of the modern world, it's a relatively vibrant uh, place to discuss ideas um, as long as you can kind of, wade through the muck <laughs> uh, that they're sort of submersed in. So I've been trying to do that. Um, you know, I, I've been um, 
sort of working on a project for many years. Um, in a way, it kind of goes uh, goes back to the beginning of my engagement with with Marxism. Um, about uh, you know, I've I've been fascinated by Marxism since I was by Marx and Engels and Hegel in, as well. Um, since I was first kind of exposed to these ideas as a teenager, and you know now sort of 20 years later, I am, I'm still trying to, to make sense of the legacy of Marxism, what, what Marx and Engels were trying to do, what they thought, why they said what they said, and, and what they did, and what, why they did what they did, um, and why the Marxist tradition that followed their lead and that, that learned from them, um, why they said what they said and did what they did. Um, and, you know, for the first, I don't know how long that would have been, maybe uh, five, six years of my um, attempt to kind of self-educate along those lines. Uh, you know, it wasn't necessarily very, um, it wasn't it wasn't exactly easy to clarify these things for, for reasons that I think a lot of people that have been trying to make sense of Marx uh, mm -hmm. and that have spoken to Marxists of various different stripes can probably understand. Uh, Marx has left us a kind of confusing legacy and not really, in my opinion, by, by his own fault, but really because of the failure of the political project that he inspired. Um, the consequences of the failure of Marxism have really uh, left the, the world both kind of literally, but also sort of like the intellectual uh, self-understanding of the world uh, kind of like a pile of ruins um, <laughs> that it's difficult to sort through, you know, and especially when it comes to Marxism. Um, so I've been trying to make sense of that for myself and, you know, engaging with Platypus and then eventually becoming a member of Platypus um, and learning from, you know, Chris Catrone and Spencer Leonard and James Vaughn and, and the members as well. And also all of the various different left, uh, you know, leftist intellectuals and sectarian groups and activists that we've engaged with has much more thoroughly deepened my understanding of these things. Um, but, you know, I, I sort of, and, you know, I still think Platypus is an essential um, project. I think the work that Platypus does is absolutely indispensable. Um, but I also have a sort of all along throughout my engagements with that organization and, and just in kind of my own time, I've had a sort of hunger to um, dive deeper into the full body of the Marx Engels collected works and get a, a sort of thorough understanding of what, what Marx and Engels were actually saying and doing and why and, and how that related to their context and how that was transmitted to the present um, and why it's sort of so difficult to get a coherent grasp on, on what that whole thing was about. So I guess you could say I've been working on, I've been working through the Marx Engels collected works, um, uh, you know, for years and just kind of accumulating thoughts and notes and, and, you know, various different things, uh, you know, written pieces and so on. Um, I don't know if there is a greater ambition in terms of some kind of like published, you know, product at the end of it or not. I mean, really, my my true desire 
is to see the rebirth of the Socialist Party of America. Platform of the Socialist Party of America, adopted in May 1904. Summarized by Reed Kane. We, the Socialist Party, make our appeal to the American people as the defender and preserver of the idea of liberty and self-government in which the nation was born, as the only political movement standing for the program and principles by which the liberty of the individual may become a fact. To this idea of liberty, the Republican and Democratic parties are utterly false. They alike struggle for power to maintain and profit by an industrial system which can be preserved only by the complete overthrow of such liberties as we already have, and by the still further enslavement and degradation of labor. Our American institutions came into the world in the name of freedom. They have been seized upon by the capitalist class as the means of rooting out the idea of freedom from among the people. Into the midst of the strain and crisis of civilization, the socialist movement comes as the only saving or conservative force. Now, whether or not that's something that could actually happen in my lifetime, I, I certainly would like to think it's possible, maybe a few decades down the line, to be realistic at, at, at least. But, you know, who knows? Um, but if it comes to it, if, if I, you know, get to the point where that doesn't seem like it's in the cards, maybe, um, you know, committing these, the results of this investigation to, to writing uh, is the best I can do. And hopefully that mm. could have some sort of positive impact in that direction. Well, yeah, I mean, one, one thing that always shocks me being so very online <laughs> as I am um, is when I see people kind of uh, spouting off on things and, I, and I'm thinking they're so wrong. And they're so confidently wrong. Yeah. I, what are they reading? And I, I sort of said this one day to my friend. He says, no, they're just reading each other's posts. That's what they're reading. They're just reading bite-sized bits of information that kind of get passed around. And then yeah. knowledge becomes sort of memefied. And, um, I, you know, a part of me wants to kind of rebel against that and, and you know, say, you know, read, read, read. Uh, the, yeah. uh, but another part of me, quoting Lenin again, is uh, wants to say, well, we want revolution as people are today, not as they were 50 years ago, not as we hope they will be in the future. <laughs> and so maybe part of what you're doing, which is to translate very difficult ideas into small little snippets of bite-sized text as a corrective to other people's small little snippets mm -hmm. of bite-sized mm -hmm. I think that's an interesting and important thing to do. I mean, it's not enough at all by any means but I, I i have found it very enlightening at least and and um at least i can then point to somebody who's writing it out in ways that um i'm no longer doing you know i write about it less and less and so uh it's good to have somebody who puts forward i think a, a clear understanding in a, in a in a in a cohesive and um simple way so I've been very grateful for that, but I hope that it comes into a bigger kind of project as well. We'll see. But I wanted to ask you, so what is it about, I actually wanted to start out by asking about libertarian communism. Mm -hmm. So just keep that thought in your mind. Sure. <laughs> but what is it about Marxism and Marxist, Marx and Engels' work that is so difficult, that makes it so hard to understand for so many people? Because I know I had a friend, sorry, I had a friend who, just by way of anecdote to illustrate what I mean about this difficulty is I had a friend who was sort of a fellow traveler with me when we were doing our PhDs. We did the capital reading groups together. And um, 
I was always amazed at him because when I don't understand something, I think there's something wrong with me. So I would try harder. Whereas if he doesn't understand something, he thinks there's something wrong with the thing. <laughs> and I was like, no, it's just like the complexity of ideas or it's just really, really difficult to communicate. And he was like, no, if the greatest minds can't figure it out, then there's something wrong with the ideas. So what do you, what do you think? Is there something wrong with us? Or is there something wrong with the ideas? Should they have been communicated more clearly? What is it that makes it so difficult? Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, I don't think it's the ideas. I, I mean, something that um, both Chris Catron and, and Spencer Leonard like to say, um, that I've seen them say in interviews with you and with Doug Lane, um, for example, is that Marx and Engels are profoundly unoriginal thinkers in a way in that they aren't really putting out um, kind of original ideas of their own. They're more concerned with critically clarifying the ideas that were around them at the time and not all of the ideas around them, but specifically what they thought were the most important, most significant ideas at the time, namely those ideas that were being taken up by the revolutionary currents uh, of the early to mid 19th century when they were coming of age and throughout, you know, to the end of the 19th century. Um, and, you know, early on for, for both of them, or more specifically for Marx, that was kind of the revolutionary democratic, uh, or you might say kind of really, really sort of the classical liberal um, idea, uh, or, or ideas kind of framework of thinking that was developed through the classical bourgeois revolutions, going back to, uh, the English and Dutch revolutions of the 17th century and the American and French revolutions of the 18th century. And even going back further than that in certain ways, uh, in terms of intellectual kind of precursors back to the Renaissance and, and so on. Um, even back to classical antiquity in, in some respects, lim limited respects. Um, so they weren't really putting out new ideas. Um, you know, I, I think Engels in his um, funeral oration for Marx lists um, a few of Marx's kind of most significant intellectual contributions, um, specifically the materialist conception of history which Marx himself admits is not really his original idea. It's on the one hand, it's a sort of taking up a kind of conscious taking up of the method of classical political economy and classical bourgeois revolutionary thought, um, which was on the one hand materialist, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's a bit complicated because, you know, you can't really point to one thinker to characterize this intellectual tradition. I mean, you could point to like John Locke, for example, and in a way Locke does encapsulate an entire kind of legacy preceding him and, and kind of both summarizes all the preceding developments, but also reframes them in terms of the, the new significance that those uh, ideas, those ways of thinking attain with the kind of completion of the English revolution with, with the glorious revolution of, of 1688. Um, so, you know, there's a sense in which they're, they're kind of in Locke, but Locke himself is really more significant 
as a precursor of an entire second wave of intellectual development, you know, the enlightenment and, and not just the enlightenment, but, you know, everything else that comes after that. Um, so there is, uh, you know, there is kind of a materialist side, but there's also an idealist side. And, and what you really have in the classical bourgeois intellectual tradition is a dialectic of materialism and idealism. Excerpt from Hegel for Beginners by Lloyd Spencer and Andre Krauss. Dialectical thinking. Hegel's different way of thinking has become known as dialectical thinking. What makes dialectical thinking so difficult to explain is that it can only be seen in practice. It is not a method or a set of principles like Aristotle's, which can be simply stated and then applied to whatever subject matter one chooses. For Hegel, only the whole is true. Every stage or phase or moment is partial, and therefore partially untrue. Hegel's grand idea is totality, which preserves within it each of the ideas or stages that it has overcome or subsumed. Overcoming or subsuming is a developmental process made up of moments, stages, or phases. The totality is the product of that process which preserves all of its moments as elements in a structure rather than as stages or phases. Think of these structural elements as the interrelated ones of a whole architecture, or even better, a fractal architecture. Aristotle's logic is concerned with separate, discrete self-identities in a deductive pattern. Hegel dissolves this classical static view in a dynamic movement towards the whole. The whole is an overcoming which preserves what it overcomes. Nothing is lost or destroyed but raised up and preserved as in a spiral. Think of the opening of a fern or a shell. This is an organic rather than mechanical logic. Hegel's special term for this contradiction of overcoming and at the same time preserving is Aufhebung, sometimes translated as sublation. Hegel calls this dynamic aspect of his thinking the power of negation. It is by means of this negativity of thought that the static or habitual becomes discarded or dissolved, made fluid and adaptable, and recovers its eagerness to push on towards the whole. Dialectical thinking derives its dynamic negation from its ability to reveal contradictions within almost any category or identity. You know, it's a back and forth between these different thinkers, between, you know, Descartes and Hobbes and, and Spinoza and Leibniz and Rousseau and Voltaire and um, Hume and Kant and even, even Hegel and Feuerbach, you know. Um, so there is a sense in which there is a, a, a movement throughout this process that you know, what, the way I was educated in philosophy and I was a philosophy student was that, you know, there was this school and this school and this school, you know, mm. the, empiricists, the empiricists thought this, the rationalists thought this, the idealists thought this, the materialists thought this, and they disagreed with each other. And which side do you think was right? Mm. Just so innate. I mean, <laughs> I had some great teachers, but overall, I think that entire way of presenting the intellectual tradition is profound. It's just profoundly incoherent. It doesn't make sense. That's not how the people at the time thought about it. I mean, they, they would talk about things in those terms, but it was more in terms of like contesting parties involved in a conflict. And it was the conflict between them that was important. It wasn't like this school or this school is right. You know, it was more like, what are we all trying to get at together through yeah. this, right? Exactly. Yeah. So Marx, Marx, in a sense, um, recognizes that this kind of dialectic of materialism and idealism, on the one hand, reaches a sort of apex in Hegel, but also comes into crisis in Hegel. And the turn to materialism after Hegel, 
um, specifically with Feuerbach, but you know, also the young Hegelians and also outside of Germany, um, doesn't represent a sort of break with Hegel in the sense of a rejection of what Hegel represents, but represents a crisis in the Hegelian culmination of this intellectual tradition that itself reflected a crisis in the society that Hegel was giving intellectual expression to and that all of the preceding um, bourgeois philosophical um, you know, uh, figures were giving expression to through their debates with each other and so on. Um, so there's that, there's you know this sort of materialist inversion of Hegel, the Hegelian dialectic, but there's also the classical, uh, the tradition of classical political economy and, and bourgeois historiography that Marx thinks were already developing a materialist conception of history, mm -hmm. but they didn't have it sort of um, theoretically or methodologically worked out. Um, you know, there was no sort of thoroughgoing statement of, um, you know, of, of this idea. And there wasn't, frankly, really a need for that, you know, at least not in the way that Marx does it. The need for that comes about in the aftermath of the crisis of the early 19th century, the Industrial Revolution. So that's where Marx's sort of um, materialist conception of history is coming from. It's not mm -hmm. really an original idea. And then, of course, there's the other contribution Engels mentions is um, is the uh, the uh, critique of political economy and the, the concept of surplus value, um, putting political economy on a scientific foundation. Um, which is not also not really an original insight. I mean, it is, but what it really is, is Marx trying to make sense of the contradictions within the classical political uh, tradition of classical political economy as they manifested in the early 19th century with the vulgarization of political economy by the, the sort of bourgeois ideologues that have supplanted the school of Smith and Ricardo on the one hand, and on the other hand, the proletarian political economy, the so-called um, Ricardian socialists, or um, you know, the sort of working class or Owenite followers of Adam Smith. Um, so Marx is really sort of taking that up and trying mm -hmm. to clarify what exactly was so important and revolutionary about Smith and, and yeah. the political economy tradition that preceded him and what is so significant about Ricardo's um, sort of corrective to Smith with respect to the labor theory of value, um, this recognition of a sort of fundamental contradiction between the right of labor and capital that sort mm -hmm. of structures the, the very process of the production of, of commodities and the production of value. Um, and the interesting thing about this whole yeah. uh, development of ideas, too, is the way that the development of ideas itself is part of a kind of materialist unfold, material unfolding of history right. that like as these things become uh as the possibilities of particular sort of material phenomena begin to unfold themselves the thinkers are then able to crack a code that people in the past could not capital volume one by karl marx page 65 the two latter peculiarities of the equivalent form will become more intelligible if we go back to the great thinker who was the first to analyze so many forms, whether of thought, society, or nature, and amongst them also the form of value. I mean Aristotle. In the first place, he clearly enunciates that the money form of commodities is only the further development of the simple form of value, that is, of expression of the value of one commodity in some other commodity, taken at random. For he says, 
five beds equals one house, is not to be distinguished from five beds equals so much money. He further sees that the value relation which gives rise to this expression makes it necessary that the house should qualitatively be made the equal of the bed, and that, without such an equalization, these two clearly different things could not be compared with each other as commensurable quantities. Exchange, he says, cannot take place without equality, and equality not without commensurability. Here, however, he comes to a stop, and gives up the further analysis of the form of value. Quote, it is, however, in reality impossible that such unlike things can be commensurable, end quote, that is, qualitatively equal. Such an equalization can only be something foreign to their real nature, consequently only, quote, a makeshift for practical purposes, end quote. Aristotle, therefore, himself tells us what barred the way to his further analysis. It was the absence of any concept of value. What is that equal something, that common substance, which admits of the value of the beds being expressed by a house? Such a thing, in truth, cannot exist, says Aristotle. And why not? Compared with the beds, the house does represent something equal to them, insofar as it represents what is really equal, both in the beds and the house, and that is, human labor. There was, however, an important fact which prevented Aristotle from seeing that, to attribute value to commodities is merely a mode of expressing all labor as equal human labor, and consequently as labor of equal quality. Greek society was founded upon slavery, and had, therefore, for its natural basis, the inequality of men and of their labor powers. The secret of the expression of value, namely, that all kinds of labor are equal and equivalent, because, and so far as they are human labor in general, cannot be deciphered until the notion of human equality has already acquired the fixity of a popular prejudice. This, however, is possible only in a society in which the great mass of the produce of labor takes the form of commodities in which, consequently, the dominant relation between man and man is that of owners of commodities. The brilliancy of Aristotle's genius is shown by this alone, that he discovered, in the expression of the value of commodities, a relation of equality. The peculiar conditions of the society in which he lived alone prevented him from discovering what, in truth, was at the bottom of this equality. The way Marx puts this in, um, in The Poverty of Philosophy, which is... is really um, something I think this, this, at least this passage in particular, there's a lot of good stuff in that, that work. And I think it's a neglected work, but um, you know, the way he characterizes Smith and Ricardo is as fatalists. Um, and the reason he says that is because, um, you know, he's, what he's really saying is that Smith and Ricardo are revolutionaries. They're reflecting on an ongoing revolution and they're trying to clarify that so it's not it's not so much that the class struggle hadn't come yet. There was a class struggle on yeah. the class mm -hmm. struggle of the bourgeoisie against the aristocracy. Against the aristocracy, right? yeah. Um, that was still ongoing, and that's obviously, in a sense, that that survived. I mean, that survived deep into the 19th century, although it took mm -hmm. on a very different character after 1848. Um, it was already taking on a different character in the in the first half of the 19th century with the Industrial Revolution and the, the early phases of the of the proletarian class struggle. Um, but, you know, Smith and Ricardo were writing, they didn't have a conception of what might be beyond bourgeois society, but they also, they, they didn't think that this was the end game of, of human history at all. Not, not at all. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that now there are other, um, political economists, you know, especially later that would frame things that way. And Marx is very critical of them, but the way Marx puts it with respect to Smith and Ricardo is they were concerned with overthrowing the old world. They weren't concerned with what was coming next. 
So the, the full force of their ideas is in terms of the, the, the necessity of this revolution that is still ongoing. And that is, you know, in crisis in the mid 18th century. Um, that's what the Wealth of Nations is. The Wealth of Nations is a response to the crisis of the bourgeois revolution, not, not its sort of terminal crisis in the Industrial Revolution, but it is, in a way, the beginning of that. That's where the Industrial Revolution comes out of. It comes out of that, that crisis in the 18th century. So Marx is not an original thinker, I, I was saying. And so, you know, he has these two big ideas that Engels mentions. But then Engels says, you know, so these are Marx's contributions to science. But Marx wasn't just like a scientist. And it's not like he was concerned with theory or philosophy or science. You know, Marx was above all a revolutionist. Marx was concerned with revolution. Marx would have done whatever it, whatever was necessary, whatever he felt was necessary to advance the ongoing revolution. Um, in his world. And, you know, you, we could get to the biography of Marx about why exactly that's the case. But, um, you know, that was his concern. And so he saw science and specifically the science of history and even more specifically the science of political economy as revolutionary forces. And he didn't just think that up. He thought that because they were revolutionary forces for the bourgeoisie in the bourgeois mm -hmm. revolutions. And they were now being taken up by this incipient proletarian revolutionary movement that was developing in England and, and Northwestern Europe. Um, they were trying to clarify their own struggle through these ideas in the same way that the bourgeois revolutionary tradition that preceded them had. So that's what he was trying to do is clarify that. Now, what, now you mentioned something um, important, which is that these ideas aren't kind of just coming out of people's heads, right? They're coming out of an engagement with reality. You know, they're, they're an attempt to clarify an ongoing social transformation. You know, so that's why you can't have, you know, Aristotle can't come up with these ideas brilliant as he was, certainly one of the greatest geniuses in human history. But no matter how great of a genius he was, he couldn't have anticipated developments that were millennia ahead of his time nor could he have understood how those developments in reality, in social reality, would compel the ways we think about the world to change. So there's this dialectic of thought and reality. Reality changes and thought is trying to catch up and make sense of those changes so that the people having the thoughts and talking about the thoughts and circulating the ideas and by discussing them and, and you know, printing them in, in, liter in literature so that they can use these ideas to get a grip on this reality as they're trying to, to engage with it and not, in a sense, get dragged behind it or left behind. You know, they want to be on the cusp of this revolutionary change. Mm -hmm. That's the significance of these ideas for, for Marx and, and, and for the entire bourgeois revolutionary tradition that preceded him. So that, that back and forth between thought and reality, that is the dialectic. You know, that's the dialectic. That's what the Hegelian dialectic is, that's what the, the dialectic is for Marx. And that isn't a, an original idea of Marx either. I mean, that goes back to Plato and even before Plato. Hegel's History of Philosophy, page 274. Zeno makes limit division the moment of discretion in space and time, the only element which is enforced in the whole of his conclusions and hence results the contradiction. The difficulty is to overcome thought, for what makes the difficulty is always thought alone, since it keeps apart the moments of an object which in their separation are really united. It brought about the fall, for man ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
but it also remedies these evils. The surface of the Earth is the shore of the cosmic ocean. On this shore, we've learned most of what we know. Recently, we've waded a little way out, maybe ankle deep, and the water seems inviting. Some part of our being knows this is where we came from. We long to return, and we can't because the cosmos is also within us. We're made of star stuff. We are a way for the cosmos to know itself. Um, obviously, the version it takes, the, the, the sense that the dialectic takes on in the modern tradition is, is different. It's, it's different in the same way that the Aristotelian conception of politics and economy, while it is, in a certain sense, the foundations for the way people think and talk about these things in the modern world, it's still fundamentally changed, even though we still use the concepts of democracy and oligarchy and so on, right? Um, so, that, so that's really what's important for Marx is the dialectic. The dialectic in the sense of kind of getting a grip on this um, relationship between thought and reality, and specifically the crisis of this dialectic, this, this bourgeois dialectic of thought and reality that had been productive up until a certain point, but that begins to break down in the early 19th century. And that's, so that's what the crisis of Hegelianism represents for Marx, but there's also the crisis of political economy and so on. Um, so I, I, now I feel like I lost the, 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 so the initial question. What I was saying was, why is it so difficult? And so I think oh, right. part of, part of the difficulty oh, is, yeah. is, is sort of grasping this dialectic. And also I think grasping the productivity of critique. Um, which is, I think, you're, is what you're getting at, yeah. is that a lot of people, I think this is part of the reason why um, a good Marxist thinker can be very much misunderstood, is that you think that when you say you criticize something, you're saying this is bad, so it should stop. <laughs> and, and Marx doesn't do that. He doesn't say we should just stop doing this, you know, roll back the wheel of history, you know, stop the world I want to get off kind of thing. He follows things through. To their logical conclusions and in a way the classical political economists did the same thing that they kind of did see forward into the future which is why they were trying to understand the puzzle of the falling rate of profit you know um i think it was ricardo who called it the bourgeois twilight you no know, marx referring to ricardo says it's the bourgeois twilight of the gods you can see in the future there will be a point at which um profit will not admit of increase and he's like oh well don't worry about it Marx 101, Aristotle, Slavery, and the Equivalent Form of Value. Blog post by Jamie Arusi, July 2nd, 2019. There were good reasons that Marx believed that we were finally ready to listen. Chief among them was Marx's understanding of the chaotic nature of life under capitalism, because capitalism never rests for a moment, and therefore never lets us rest either. And in such a world, it's hard for any social prejudice to endure because our prejudices can't keep up with the rapid pace of social change, or, as Marx famously wrote in the Communist Manifesto, all fixed, fast-frozen relations with their train of ancient and venerable prejudices and opinions are swept away, all new-formed ones become antiquated before they can ossify, all that is solid melts into air, all that is holy is profaned, and man is at last compelled to face with sober senses his real conditions of life and his relations with his kind. 
However, the problem with this is that Marx underestimated our willful avoidance of the truth. Aristotle's prejudice might have been a product of his time, but Aristotle did realize that there was something to think about, and he then chose not to think about it. Moreover, Aristotle was a wealthy Athenian whose comfortable life could only exist by way of slave labor, and I have little doubt that his material comfort acted as a strong disincentive towards questioning any beliefs that might require a change in how he lived. That is, believing in slavery allowed Aristotle to be the philosopher he wanted to be, but questioning slavery might have undermined that life. And while capitalist societies have a hard time finding a set of social beliefs that endure for any period of time, such as the ancient belief in slavery, what does endure is our desire for these beliefs. We, like Aristotle, have a strong will against accepting any truths that might make our lives more difficult. So we might not have a train of ancient and venerable prejudices and opinions on which to cling, but we've also learned to become much more active and creative in our self-deceptions. We're all searchers, searching for anything but the truth. Once More on Contradiction by Reed Kane May 10th, 2022. The obscurity of the dialectical method was not due to its philosophical or rhetorical abstruseness, but the blindness of intellectuals to the necessity of social transformation, their attachment to the social order upon which they depended. The proletariat also depended upon that social order, but their dependence was fraught. Proletarians at once depended upon, and were unable to depend upon, bourgeois social relations. In participating in the society of labor, the proletariat undermined the value of its own labor. This self-undermining dynamic was symptomatic of the fact that the proletariat collectively constituted a capacity for social transformation, capital, that they could not master so long as they were divided against one another, as mere individual commodity dealers competing to sell their labor power. The proletariat was hence driven by the bourgeois desire to realize the value of their labor to confront the self-contradictory character of that labor as labor that rendered itself superfluous. They had to work through this contradiction by asserting control over the labor process and realizing the emancipatory potential of this self-contradiction in the overcoming of labor, and hence of its own existence as a class and the very basis of class society altogether. The discrepancy between Marx's historical moment and our own is due not to some fundamental change, but to the collapse of the proletarian class struggle following the failure of the World Socialist Revolution at the outset of the 20th century, and, consequently, the apologetic adaptation of socialists, communists, and Marxists to the consequences of this failure, the counter-revolutionary world order in which communist countries, as well as social democratic and liberal welfare states, communist and social democratic parties, and vulgarized Marxist theory all became political instruments of global capitalism. But, and then Marx just takes this even further. Um, so he, he, he sees something happening and he just keeps taking it through. And what I think a lot of people have misunderstood, I think historically as well, is that they think Marx being critical of capitalism means we reject and stop and abolish and just stop. But that's not what he does. He's, he's critiquing in order to see, to see what's, what comes out of it. There's, a, there's always a positive side to the critique. And that's a very difficult thing for people to grasp. It is. And so that, that, that brings me back to your initial question. I was trying to set something up. I got a little, uh, went a little off the rails. But, um, you know, what, what makes it so difficult is, is the dialectic is inscrutable to people. Um, and it's inscrutable 
you know, there's plenty of people that will hear that word and think that you're just speaking and speaking nonsense. And as soon as you you say that, it's like I'm I'm not, you know, they shut they shut down because yeah. they don't even know I don't what even that's like supposed to mean. I don't, I don't um, like to use the word because it also sounds a bit like Dianetics. So it has like this like pseudoscientific ring to it. So I don't even like to use the word. It does. And it's not, and not, and you know, I mean, not for good reason. Um, because the other side is that there's a lot of people that take up that term. Uh, well, I don't know if it's a lot, but you know, if you serve, if you're in the circles of, of the left, you may encounter that term a lot, um, by people that clearly don't understand what it means. And that's because they're doing exactly what Marx and Engels and Hegel before him were very clearly, um, you know, very clearly considered the wrong approach. If, if there's a wrong approach, the wrong approach would be to reduce um, thought to a formula, to reduce thought to a kind of set pattern that you simply fill in the blanks and that's your answer. You know, the, like the that great irony is that people think what the dialectic is, is like thesis, antithesis, synthesis, or... Yeah whatever, you know, Marx himself lampoons Proudhon for, for this in the poverty of philosophy. Or, and I don't know where this came from, but now I've, I've encountered some right-wing people that, you know, there's this whole conspiracy theory about the Hegelian dialectic, which I don't fully understand. But there is this idea that it has, you know, I saw Alex Jones, for example, ranting about the Hegelian dialectic back a video from like 20 years ago or something. <laughs> And ask yourselves, what are you doing in this time of great challenge? Um, I want to take you to a piece that was put together by our very own John Bound. He's a very talented writer and producer here at Infowars.com. And he's going to educate us on the Hegelian dialectic. And he's focusing on the psychology behind government-sponsored terrorism. The global banking cartel has used one tried-and-true process to create wars, rob us of our currency, and eat away at our substance. This process of control over the masses is called the Hegelian dialectic. So what is it, and how is it being used today? German philosopher George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel devised a dialectic, or method to resolve a disagreement between outcomes. The dialectic is made up of three attributes, thesis, an idea or opinion, antithesis, the opposite idea or opinion, and synthesis, the alchemic process to bring together a wanted change. It is commonly referred to as order out of chaos. Williams goes on to describe how Hegel sees the potential life-enhancing function of war, but he cautions that Hegel is not being prescriptive. He is not saying that nations should go to war, he is adopting the position of the disinterested observer, simply pointing out that nations going to war can generate a positive outcome. Williams writes, Hegel, just as does Heraclitus, sees the positive side of conflict and antagonism among individuals and states. Quote, In enmity amongst men, the one sets himself up independently of the other, or is for himself and realizes himself, but unity and peace sink this independence in an indivisibility or unreality. Individual personality, both amongst men and states, depends on the existence of conflict and opposition. Thus, war is not always to be deplored, since without it a state may often not be able to express its personality. 
but for Hegel to suggest that war has a positive or beneficial side is not the same as actively advocating war as a means of resolving international disputes. Um, but, you know, they'll, they, there's this idea that it's like you create a problem in order to um, impose, it, 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 it's almost like the Naomi Klein shock doctrine idea, right? Like, there's a there's a kind of cat catastrophic crisis, and you use that as an opportunity to like impose some new oh, order yes. things. Right, like, that's, right. what, that's what I that's as far as I understand it. That's that seems to be what a lot of like right wing people think it is. And in any case, no, it's neither of those things. It's not it's not like this. Oh, there's a formula. This is how you do it. No, it's not like that at all. That's not what it means. It literally. I mean, if you want to know what the dialectic is. I mean, to get a start, a beginning of an, uh, like a seed of an idea, it's again, this is not a sufficient idea, but, um, for, with respect to the, the kind of modern sense of it. But if, if you really want to, um, have a foundation for what that term means, you have to read Plato and, and Aristotle, you know, you have to read the Socratic dialogues because what is Socrates doing? If you've read Plato, what is Socrates doing? He's doing dialectics. And what is dialectics? It's when you take, you know, so the way Aristotle explains it is there's essentially two different approaches to reasoning. You either start from premises that you know are true, and then you deduce the conclude, you know, you deduce from those premises conclusions that are therefore true, as long as you're using, you know, sound syllogisms. Um, and that's fine if you know, if you have true premises, premises that you know to be true. But what if you don't? I mean, we don't know a lot of things to be true in, in a kind of modern skeptical context, you know, it's sort of uh, Cartesian or, um, you know, um, uh, Baconian kind of skeptical framework where we're not taking for granted all of the intellectual achievements of antiquity and, and uh, Christi medieval Christianity. Um, you know, where are we beginning? We don't really have any firm foundation. Maybe the cogito ergo sum or something. But you know, can we deduce everything from that? Uh, maybe. So, what is dialectics? It's when you reason from premises that you don't know whether or not they're true, and what you're doing in drawing conclusions from them is trying to see if they're true or not, right? And so, what that involves is you you don't just take any premise. You take premises that are generally thought to be true, or that you know educated and you know people claim to be true or say are probably true and you say okay so if you if you take this premise what does that entail what are the conclusions that you can draw from that and you keep drawing conclusions until you get to a point where the conclusions contradict the premises and then you need to say okay i guess those premises were wrong but they weren't so wrong that it didn't give us anything right there's something here so we have to refine those premises in order to overcome the contradiction and then you do it again you keep doing that Right. And so the, the kind of modern conception, especially with Hegel and then Marx, is that this isn't just a matter of thought. Right. It's not just a matter of premises in the sense of of, um, you know, in, in a process of reasoning in the sense that, like, you know, this assertion, this assertion, you know, this proposition, this proposition are my premises. What does Marx say? Right. In the German ideology, the premises from which we begin are, you know, really existing men, you know, in history, you know, this we, we like material reality right like the, the the world around us you know this is our premise you know the fact that we are existing in a world where we're able to s sustain ourselves through our social relations um you know so 
the point basically being that there is a dialectical process in the way I just described at play in the very process of social activity that constitutes mm -hmm. history. Um, and that's been lost. That, that whole way of thinking about history has been lost um, for the most part. I mean, it doesn't make sense to people anymore because... Visit patreon.com slash Ashley A. Frawley for part two.